Now, uh, as I begin, I earlier this year, I read a book called, I think it was called The 5 a.m. Club, but basically it was about uh, getting up earlier in the morning. And uh, I read this book because every once in a while, you know, I like the idea of being up early, but I don't like actually getting up early. So I'm like, maybe this will give me some motivation. Part of my problem, historically, is that I don't sleep well. It takes me a while to fall asleep, and, and I wake up a lot in the middle of the night, and so sometimes I'd read things or hear things, and they're like, well, you should, you know, sleep in in the front end. And so instead of sleeping in the morning, just go to bed earlier. But my problem was, you know, if I randomly go to bed earlier, I'm not going to fall asleep. Now, earlier last year, I changed some, like, nightly routine habits, and as a side result, it actually helped me fall asleep faster. One of those things is every night I, I, in my room, I will read on my little, I've got this little uh, chair, and it's little reading light. It's completely dark. And I read for about 30 to 45 minutes every single night. And it makes me tired. In fact, it makes me more tired than laying in the bed with my eyes closed. And so I'm reading this book about getting up earlier and it had nothing to do with the book itself. But as I'm reading this book, like getting tired at night, I'm like, oh, I can actually like go to bed earlier because whenever I go to my room and turn off all the lights and read, I get tired. It had nothing to do with the book, but now I go to bed earlier and get up earlier just because I had a revelation of how to actually go to sleep earlier than I normally do. Now, I shared that maybe not very exciting for you story to say that today we are beginning the book of James, and it is all about practically how our faith works in everyday life. These things about the gospel and following Jesus and honoring him, well, how do you actually do that? So that is what James is all about. Now, we're going to hit on a, a various number of topics throughout this series. Today, we're going to hit on suffering, which impacts all of us, doubt, which impacts all of us, and a little bit on money, which also impacts all of us. Typically, every week of the series, it'll kind of be just on one particular area, but at the beginning, James has a couple of things, and we're going to see how these things actually do go together. Now, before we jump in really quickly, I just want to give you a little bit of background on James and who he is. Now, if you have a sibling, you don't have to say this out loud, especially if they're here, but if you had a sibling, what would it take for them, for you to believe that they were the Messiah? right? To be sent from God. Now, some of you are laughing because you're like, well, my sibling was sent from somebody, but it wasn't from God. I can tell you that much, right? What would it take for you to believe that they were God's Messiah? So, so James, who is the author of this book of the Bible, is one of Jesus's half-brothers, right? In fact, Jesus, we know, had four brothers and at least two sisters, because in Mark chapter 6, it talks about Jesus's sisters, plural. So we had at least six other siblings. Now, here's what we know about James. James did not believe that Jesus was God's chosen Messiah. He didn't. In fact, John chapter 7 tells us as much because it tells us that his brothers did not believe him to be the Messiah. The question then becomes, what changed for James? What changed for James? Now, maybe, you know, for James, it was a little bit of bitterness. Like you can imagine like whenever they're, like something's going on and Mary's like, James, stop touching your brother. Well, he was bothering me. No, he wasn't. James, did you steal his, your toy from Jesus again? Well, he stole it from me first. No, he didn't. Right? You can just imagine that maybe he's just like, he always is right. I'm always wrong. But what happened for James to change his mind? Well, what happened, we know, was the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that this man, Jesus, died and then somehow came back to life, which people do not normally do. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul references this fact concerning James, that the resurrection changed everything for James. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, who didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah until he kind of saw what he did, and then he saw that he rose from the dead, that like maybe this guy was legit. He is the one writing us this letter. Now, another side fact, a fun fact real quickly. This was uh, written in, in around the early to mid-40s AD, which was about 10 years 
after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It is our oldest or maybe first written book of the New Testament is the gospel, or sorry, is the epistle of James. James is writing to, uh, uh, to Christians in the Jerusalem area where he became kind of the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. These are predominantly Jews, which we'll see why that's relevant in for a second. And of course, those who are Gentiles who are coming into the faith. And so if you have a Bible, will you turn to me to James chapter one? If you do not have a Bible, there's one in front of you. Uh, it'll be on page 1071. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. So James chapter one, starting in verse one, here is how James begins his letter. It says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. So two really quick things to start off his letter. One, I just want to like remind us um, that because you can read this and maybe get kind of confused. Christ is not Jesus's last name. So in us, how we do things, it's like your first name and your last name. In ancient, you know, Roman society, Greek culture, that's not how things work. Christ is a designation. It is a title. It means anointed one or it means Messiah. In other words, when you read Jesus Christ, what you could do is read Messiah Jesus. So this is Messiah Lord Jesus is who he is talking about. Now, what's fascinating is that James does not say, James, the brother of Jesus. Like he doesn't claim any authority simply by being his brother. He says, the authority I have from this book does not come from me or my relationship to Jesus. It comes from Jesus himself. It comes from Jesus himself. James, a servant of my brother who I didn't believe was the Messiah, and then I saw who he was. That is who wrote this book. And I'm writing this to the 12 tribes and the dispersion. Now, the reference here is to the 12 tribes of Israel that used to make up the promised land, but by the first century were dispersed throughout mostly the Roman Empire. And the Jewish hope was that one day the 12 tribes would be regathered again into the promised land. And what James is doing here is, again, he's writing predominantly to Jewish Christians, and he's implying that the true Israel, that God's true chosen people are not just people who are ethnically Jewish, but are those who follow in the way of Messiah Jesus, who will one day regather his kingdom when he returns. And so again, James is writing to Jesus' followers. That's who he's writing to, brothers and sisters in the faith. And as we're going to see, they're facing various trials and difficulties, and so he is going to explain to them how to follow Jesus in the midst of their life. And so I just want to say this because James has a lot of helpful things, sometimes confusing things. And if you do not understand this point, you can misunderstand who James is actually talking to. Here's what we need to know, that God's promises are for God's people. God's promises are for God's people. The things that James is going to write about in this letter, it is not general advice for the everyday person. It is specifically for those who are the people of God. Put another way, they are not for people who do not belong to Jesus. What he's going to write here, what we're going to see today in the next couple of weeks, are not for people who do not belong to Jesus. And so when we read things in James and in the New Testament about things like grace and redemption and future and hope and restoration, they are promises for the people of God. Now, of course, we do know that God desires all people to come to know him. It says this in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, that he offers that, that he, that he uh, desires that no one should perish, but all to come to him. And of course, he offers us entrance into the kingdom of God, not by promising to do better in the future, but by trusting in Jesus' perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection. So he's writing to the people of God, and the offer is that anybody can partake in this, but if you don't follow, trust, and repent in Jesus, you do not get these things. 
things. You do not get the promises of God without God. It's not something you can grow into or work harder at. You either have it or you don't. I'll give you an example. I don't know how this came up, but on New Year's Eve, uh, Christine and I took the kids and we drove down to Wilmington for the day because we went to college there. And so we ha- went to lunch and dinner in some of our favorite spots and the kids ran around on the beach and whatever. And at some point uh, during the day, I don't, <laughs> we were talking about college. We drove around UNC Wilmington where we went to school. And at some point the conversation came up that there were multiple times when Christine and I were dating in college where her roommates told her, you know, you could like date someone more attractive than Dylan. <laughs> now, I don't know if, that's what, if that went into the fact that why she dumped me twice when we were, you know, maybe she was like, maybe you're right. I don't know. But multiple times she was told you could date someone that's actually more attractive than Dylan. Now, she has said over time that I have gotten more attractive. I don't know if she's trying to make herself feel better or whatever. But she's like, but yeah, you like, as you've grown, you've kind of aged, maybe like a fine wine, right? So, so um, regardless of what her roommate said about me, yeah, you can watch this live stream. How do I look now? Do I look good? Okay. Anyway, um, so like I maybe grew in to uh, being more at least on her level of attractiveness. Maybe it was like this before. Maybe it's like this now. But like we're getting there, okay? We're getting there. Hear me. God's promises do not work like that. You don't grow into them. You either have them or you don't. You either have them or you don't. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I'm not saying check out. I'm saying, man, this is what is available to you. For those of us that are followers of Jesus, we need to be reminded that this is available to you and that Jesus is the invitation to experience what James is going to write about. Okay, so God's promises are for God's people. With that in mind, let's hear what he says. He says this in verse 2. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Consider it a great joy, brothers and sisters, when you experience a great trial. Now, again, brothers and sisters here, he's talking to members of the faith. Brothers and sisters here, you can put, the, you can put James back up there. You're not there yet. It's coming, okay? It's coming. I know you're getting excited. All right, uh, James 1. So, so, so brothers and sisters, okay? And again, it is for those who are followers of Jesus. And he's telling Christians, so not the, the audience at large, but Christians to consider their trials with great joy or with all joy or with complete joy. Those are the various ways you can translate that great joy word there. Now, let's be honest. That sounds crazy that you and I should consider our trials and our sufferings a great joy, that we should, we should uh, consider our difficulties in life that some of you are living in right now with great joy. The question is, how, how, how is this possible? Now, I want to say this is a little technical, but it's helpful to, to understand what I think a, a verse that maybe sometimes is misunderstood. Uh, the phrase here that we have translated as great joy implies intensity and not exclusivity. It implies intensity, not exclusivity. Here's what I mean. James is not saying that Christians should have no other response to suffering other than joy. That is not what James is saying. But rather, in the midst of our suffering and maybe some of the other emotions that you are feeling, that trials can and also should be an occasion for joy as well. That joy can be one of, not, not the only, not exclusively, but one of the many things that you are feeling. And so if you are suffering right now, I just want to say this. Do not let people, even with good intentions, quote you this passage and tell you things like, hey, man, you just got to get over it. Hey, man, you just got to get through it. Maybe kind of downplay what you're going with, going through or that it will all be okay in the end. Like far from it. 
What James is saying here is simply that joy can be present as well. The question then becomes, well, how is it possible? Right? How is it possible for joy to be one of those emotions that you are feeling? How is that possible? Well, he says this in verse 3 if we keep reading. He says, because you know, here's how you can experience great joy. Because you know that, test, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So these trials can produce endurance, which in other words, uh, the joy we can experience is because they can solidify or strengthen your faith. Verse 4, he says this, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. This is the point of how you can experience joy in trials. In other words, here's the good news about trials and suffering. That it can produce endurance in your faith. And as you endure or as you grow in maturity or grow into completeness, God can use your, again, your trials to strengthen your relationship with him. That you can experience things about God you would not have experienced otherwise. Now, again, I just want to say this. It's important to know that the testing of your faith here that James is talking about is not, okay, hear me. It is not to determine whether a person has faith or not. He's not saying your trial is a test to see if you're trusting Jesus or not, but rather it is intended to purify faith that already exists or strengthen or give you the ability to endure, to build up a more mature faith that already exists. Remember, this book is written to Christians. And so apart from Christ, hear me, there is no real joy that can be found in suffering. There's no real joy there. Now, if you're not a Christian, the caveat here could be that God could be using that very thing to draw you closer to him. But apart from Christ, man, if someone says, hey, man, you're going through everything right now, great joy, complete joy, you should look at that person and say, you're crazy because suffering is awful. Suffering is awful. And so again, here we have this word as mature, that you, in verse four, that, you're, that this endurance can, can lead your faith to be more mature or more complete. Now, what's happening here? is he's simply saying, it comes from the Greek word teleos, and it refers to wholeness. The idea here is that it's going to give you the ability to live a more completely integrated life where your actions are consistent with your belief in Jesus. So that your actions are consistent with your belief in Jesus, which of course, what this letter is all about. In other words, a tested faith can produce not necessarily a perfect faith, as in like never sin faith, but a more mature faith or a more consistent faith that's integrated. In other words, it can make your faith more of the real deal. And so what Paul, James is saying here is that Christians should allow endurance to do its work. And as it does through your trials, you can become more whole in your faith. Now, last thing I want to say, remember James, again, he's representing this as the ultimate goal of trials and the testings that you and I experience. He is not claiming, and hear me, he is not claiming that believers will always attain this goal in suffering. He's not saying you're not a Christian if you're not experiencing any joy. He's saying this is the ideal that we should shoot for, or this is the opportunity before us in our suffering that our joy might bring us to fullness. Or put another way, the joy found in suffering is the opportunity for a more complete faith. That's essentially what James is saying here. The joy that you found is a more complete faith to, to be integrated, to experience the God who loves you. Again, it is not, it is not that joy is the only emotion that you can have. But on the flip side, it does mean that you can have it. 
doesn't mean that you can have it. Maybe think of it this way. Uh, if you've got kids, or you, you, maybe you probably don't remember this if you were a kid, uh, but if you have kids, right, potty training your child is not fun, right? But you have to do it, and they have to endure it if you want your child to be a functioning human being, right? Like you just, if you, you have to do it. Or learning, teaching your child how to eat, like going from just their hands to like a spoon and a fork, like that's kind of more work for you as a parent. But if you're eating with your hands all the time, like if you're going to Angus Barn and you're just like eating your steak, like, going to, like people are like, well, that's weird, right? Learning how to ride a bike, various things in your life as you've learned, as you've grown older when you were a child, you had to go through this period of uh, uncomfortableness, of trials, where it would have been easier to quit but you endured and it made you a more integrated human being. This is what James is saying is on the other side of your suffering if you can endure it well. Now again, I'm not saying this is easy. Many of you have been through things. Some of you are going through terrible things right now. Many of you know my story about when my dad died when I was 19. That was absolutely awful. It was absolutely awful. However, I, I would submit this to you. Maybe I bet that some of the people that you respect most, like the people in your life, that you know are followers of Jesus, that you have the most respect for for their faith, maybe people that you want to emulate in your own life, I would be willing to bet that they have suffered and they have, they have a faith worth emulating because of it. Because their faith was able to endure and become more mature and complete. The joy found in suffering is the opportunity for a more complete faith. And then James continues, he says this in verse 5, now if any of you lacks wisdom, so now he goes and speaks on wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. Verse 7, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. But this comes to another well-known verse that also does not sound very fun, right? Um, that when it comes to facing trials in life or anything in life, anything, right, we should, here's the encouraging part, like we should ask God for his wisdom and guidance and leading. That sounds great. Now, yet the hard part is that James says, as you do so, you should do so without doubting or else you should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Now you read that and you think, uh-oh, because I got doubts, right? You got doubts, I got doubts, we all got doubts. The question is, what does this mean for us? That if we're supposed to ask things from God, but we're not supposed to doubt. Now, uh, it's helpful to note that the, the book of James was uh, heavily influenced by the book of Proverbs, and of course, Jesus' teachings, specifically Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, that you can read in Matthew 5 through 7, because it's all about Jesus saying like, this is what it looks like to follow in the way of the king. So James is heavily influenced, and there's a lot of echoes to the Sermon on the Mount uh, in James. This is one of them. You see, in, in Matthew chapter 7, during the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Right? He's saying, seek the Lord and ask him for things, that God wants to answer the prayers of those who seek him, of course, according to his will. But again, the problem is the whole doubt thing. So he wants to answer our prayers, but then we doubt. So what happens? Now, let me explain something to you. If you could chat with me for two minutes to, to really understand what's happening here. Um, that in both the Gospel of Matthew and the book of James, the opposite of believe or believing is said to be doubting. So these things are pitted as opposite in the Gospel of Matthew and the book of James. And the implication you get from the word that we have translated here as doubting is in the Greek, disputing, for, uh, disputing with oneself. 
This idea that you're arguing, going back and forth internally. And in the case of the book of Matthew and the book of James, it is suggestive of a strong type of doubting with an inconsistent attitude toward God. Now, let me explain to you what this looks like. In Romans chapter 4, the apostle Paul is is writing about the the man named Abraham that you can read about in Genesis. It says this in Romans 4.20. He says, he did not waver in unbelief. It's the same word that's translated as, as doubt here in James. That he, talking about Abraham, did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Now, here's what's interesting. He's talking here about Abraham's faith, specifically that God promised to make Abraham into a great nation. Uh, However, if you've read the story of Abraham, we spent a lot of time on it last year when we went through the book of Genesis, Um, as Paul certainly knew, because like you and I might read the book of Genesis, Paul had it memorized. So Paul knows Genesis better than, than we do. When you read the story of Abraham, you see that Abraham did, in fact, seem to doubt God's promises multiple times with certain decisions he made, right? There are times where he, like, said his wife was his sister to, like, keep himself safe. Remember his wife, Sarah, and him came up with an idea to impregnate one of Sarah's servants because their promised son doesn't seem to be happening. There there are many things, decisions that Abraham made that would make you think, well, I think Abraham was wavering. So what's happening here? Well, I think Paul's point in Romans 4 is not, it's not that Abraham never had any doubt about God's promises to him, but rather that Abraham over many years displayed an overarching consistency in his faith in God. He had ups and he had his downs, but he never abandoned God. He never turned his back on God, even if he had questions and sometimes made questionable decisions. Now, here's what this means for James. It means that James then is not claiming that prayers will never be answered if you ever have any doubt. That's not what he's saying. But rather, he wants us to know that God responds to us when our lives uh, display a basic consistency and purpose and intent. That, In other words, we have spiritual integrity. Um, uh, this is maybe an extreme example, but, but here's what this would look like. Like, imagine you've got something going on in your life and you're praying to God and he's not answering things in the timeline that you would want. And so then you go to like a Ouija board, like maybe this thing can figure it out. Right. And then, well, that's not getting your help. And so then you go read some horoscopes. Like maybe I can figure out my destiny through some horoscopes, but that's not working out. So then you go back to God again. Maybe you spend some time praying and start following Jesus. And it's like, well, this isn't working. And so, so then you go to a palm reader and try to do some incantations and go on a spiritual retreat and like some tea hut, you know, somewhere in the West and like sweat out all the bad stuff in your body. Like you're going through all of these things and that doesn't work. And so then you go back to God again, right? That is more of the idea of what James is saying here. What he's not saying is that God, I'm praying for this. I'm not sure you can or you want to or you will, but I'm going to keep showing up. So the former, go to God, go to this thing, go back and forth. And then that, that is double-minded. The the latter here is not, right? Going with every new cultural expression or idea for enlightenment, that is being blown and tossed by the sea. And remember, Jesus is the way, not a way. He is the way, not a way. So uh, in other words, here's why I think you could sum up what James is saying. That there is a way to doubt God faithfully and unfaithfully. There is a way to doubt God faithfully. And there is a way to doubt God unfaithfully. Can I just say this? Some of you here are struggling mightily right now. Like I know, like we've had conversations. Some of you are struggling mightily. And you think that because your suffering has led to questions about God, that therefore God is mad at you. 
that God is disappointed, that you would have questions. Can I just say, can I just say something? The very fact that you are here right now, the very fact that you are here right now is evidence of an enduring faith and not a double-minded one. That is an evidence of an enduring faith. And I'm trying to stick this out. I'm trying to figure this out that I'm not giving up on God. That is evidence of an, of an enduring faith, not a double-minded one. In fact, there's a well-known book, many of you might be familiar with it, called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. And this book is quite fascinating. Obviously, it's fiction, but it's written from the perspective of Satan and his demons. And in this book, basically, every human being has like a, has like a demon who like follows them around and is trying to get them not to know and follow Jesus. And so this book is about this demon named Wormwood, and he's assigned to this human being. And at one point in this book, uh, the, the, the human being that Wormwood is assigned to, like everything's going bad. And so Wormwood is super excited, and he's writing letters to his superior demon and like all pumped up that like things are going bad for this guy like we're on the right track and then Wormwood's superior demon writes back to Wormwood and he says this it'll be on the screen he says our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will again the enemy here is God Jesus and his angels looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him, that is God, seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. He said, don't celebrate just because bad things are going on in this person's life because this person still hasn't given up on God and that's a problem. Can I just say, man, some of you are being dangerously faithful. Man, you don't feel it. You don't understand. You, you are being dangerously faithful. This man said, don't give up. Man, don't give up. For your sake and for ours, man, do not give up. And for many, again, including for the people of God, I, maybe I want to encourage you, man, who knows, that who, who knows what you are suffering with? Like, are there people in your life, one of the graces God has given us is community. Like, are there people who can suffer with you? If you're not a part of a community group, I encourage you to sign up for one. You can check on the Connect card or you can text NCC groups, all one word, to 97,000, that you would have a people who can suffer with you, who can doubt with you, and who can plead on your behalf with you. There is a way to doubt God faithfully. God, I'm not sure. Maybe I made some decisions, but I'm not giving up. And there's a way to doubt him unfaithfully. Those are two different things. And then he says this, the last part we'll read, verse 9. He continues, that the brother of humble circumstance, so those who materially don't have much, boast in his exaltation. Verse 10, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he, has, he will pass away like the flower of the field. For the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its, flowers, its flower falls off and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. In other words, the last example James gives us in this kind of introductory sec section is he presents us with an example of a rich man and a poor man. And to the poor man, he says, listen, I know everything in your life maybe stinks. It doesn't look like you have much power or authority or income in your life, but you have reason to boast. Regardless of what society says or how you feel, that you can have joy because you know that you are part of the kingdom of God. Like no matter how you look like financially or social, economically, you are part of the kingdom of God. You can boast in that. And now, now your status before God is not about how much money you make or what you look like or how you dress, but the fact that you are a son or daughter of the king, that you can boast in that. And then he says to the rich, finding your identity or boasting in your riches, don't do that. 
because those things will pass away. Rather, maybe just like the poor person, you should boast in your identity of Jesus, who, by the way, was mocked and crucified. He wasn't cool. Like, he wasn't Mr. Popular at the end. He was mocked and crucified. So you should take pride, not in your status and and human beings, like looking like above better than other people, but in fact, in Jesus's humiliation, because rich or poor, Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. Jesus, not how much you have or how little you have. And of course, James, as we well know, uh, another reason why I think this is linked into this kind of being double-minded and doubting, James and, and we well know that money can, money can buy things, or when you have money, when you have more resources, you have the ability to, and the power to, compromises, to, to compromise in the way that if you don't have much, you can't, right? It gives you the ability to chase things of this world instead of the Lord, In fact, Jesus also says in the Sermon on the Mount that you cannot serve both God and money. So so to those who have, which is pretty much all Americans to some degree, uh, don't let that make you double-minded in your faith. He's not saying you can't pursue money or have money or make money, but do not let that tempt you to become double-minded. I'm going to trust in the Lord, but now I've got a good nest egg. I've got a good thing. I think I'm good on my own. Like, I don't think I need that God thing. I got all, all, all I need is in my bank account. Do not allow that to be true of you. Do not be double-minded in your faith, whether it's doubting God, like I'm, I'm doing my own thing, or financially, or whatever it is. Because here's the reality, and here's how I want to close with the story, okay? Here's the reality, that Jesus alone is where we find joy. This is how, even in the midst of suffering and hardships, we can have joy, because we know that this is not the end, and we know that your suffering actually matters, It actually matters because in Jesus, we can experience grace, forgiveness, and love. And joy and contentment can actually be found in him when you have a lot or when you have a little. Now, the the question is why? Well, of course, it's because he saves us while we are yet sinners. That he walks with us in our doubts. That he gives us hope and meaning and the ability to have purpose even when life is heavy that your circumstances don't define who you are. And only he can save which is lost. Only he can save which is lost. Not you being a better person or promising to do better in the future. Now, some of you, can I just say this? Man, if you're not careful, whether you're rich or not, you are withering away while pursuing activities that cannot save you. And you're dying. You're, you're pursuing things that cannot give you what only Jesus can give you. They cannot save you. And so we turn to Jesus, not to make ourselves feel better, or even because it's the right thing to do, quote unquote, but because he can give us, he can rescue us, and he can save us. Uh, Many of you obviously are familiar with what happened on 9-11. And depending on how old you are, you can probably remember like hearing the phone calls or seeing things happen on TV. Uh, What you might not know is in 9-11, there were only uh, 12 survivors that were pulled out out of the towers after they collapsed. So only 12 people survived that were like in the towers in any area when the towers end up falling. Two of them were police officers named Will Jimeno and John McLaughlin. They were police officers with New York. And they were located not by other officers and firefighters or active duty military. They were actually found by an accountant. Good for something, all right? So accountants can do, no, I'm just kidding, accountants are awesome. No, but this man, so the man who found these two people uh, uh, was, a, was a man named Dave Carnes. Now, to be fair to Dave, he had actually previously served in the, as a Marine for 23 years, and so he wasn't probably your average accountant. 
but Dave Carnes, who's a Christian, by the way, he used to live in New York City in an, and he office in a building right next to the Twin Towers and he actually spent a lot of time working in the Twin Towers. Well, a few months before 9-11, his work had moved him to Connecticut. So he had moved a few hours away from New York City. And a few months prior, he transfers to Connecticut. After the second plane hit the tower, you know, everyone in the office, everyone's seeing these things. He heard someone in his office say, our nation is at war. At which point he asked if his manager, if he could leave for the day. He didn't say where he was going, but he said that he felt that he had, an, he had a responsibility to act. So he leaves. He drives straight to a barber to get a military grade or military, a Marine style crew cut. Then he goes home. He changes out of his slacks and into his military fatigues and drives straight to New York City. It's a couple hours away. He gets there. He stops at the church that he used to attend and he asks the pastor if he would pray for him. At this point, it's kind of, I don't know, early, mid, around noon, one o'clock in the afternoon. So a lot of people were going to churches that day praying. So there's a lot of people there. He grabs his pastor, says, can you pray for me? He tells his pastor what he's about to do. And he says he fully expects not to survive. In fact, he calls his wife on the phone, says, oh, here's what I'm going to do. I don't know if I'm going to make it. But he asks if his pastor would pray that he would survive what he was going to do. He asked him to pray for protection. Um, so he goes. He, his, his, his intent was to go to ground zero and to save that which was lost. If he could save anybody. So he goes to ground zero. Now there's chaos everywhere. There's smoke. There's fire. There's explosions. There are other buildings who had fallen down. And he approaches a contingent of firefighters. Now part of the reason, again, he could get there is because he had his military fatigues on and there's a lot of chaos. And so he, he gets to like where the closest people are to, you know, to where the towers fell, which was still a little bit away. So it's probably later afternoon at this point. And he asks them who was leading the rescue operations for the people that were still trapped. The firefighters say no one, because right now you'll die if you'll go there. There were still some uh, surrounding buildings that they were expecting to collapse at any moment. She said, nobody's there yet because you will die if you go there. But his goal was to seek and save anyone that was lost. So he went anyway. So he goes smoke everywhere. I mean, it's a terrible situation. And he starts yelling uh, for anyone to make a noise if they were alive. Now, Will and John were in one of the towers that fell. They, when, they, when the top levels of the tower started to crumble, they knew they were going to die. Knew they were going to die. So Will grabbed John, jumped into an open elevator shaft, fell multiple stories. They broke multiple bones, but they survived. They were buried in a case in an elevator shaft, stuck under a ton of ruins with no hope of rescuing themselves. Right? There was literally nothing they could do. Like they were there, left for dead. Until late afternoon, sort of five-ish, six o'clock in the evening, this guy named Dave Carnes shows up. He risking his own life. He's walking around the rubble yelling, if you can hear me, yell or make noise. If you can hear me, yell or make noise. Now, he says, if you watch the interviews, he kept doing this even though he could not hear anybody on the off chance that somebody could hear him. So he kept saying, hear me, yell if you make noise. Eventually, after walking around for a while, he spots the area where these men are trapped. Once he kind of gets to the location where these men are trapped, eventually other people show up and they begin this rescue operation to save these two police officers, all because this man named Dave, at great risk to himself, risked everything he had to save that which was lost. And listen, and this is the gospel, that Jesus, in great detriment to himself, risks everything to invite people to experience the kingdom of God that we submit our lives to Jesus because he has rescued us and showed us a better way to live. Again, only in Jesus or Jesus alone is where we find joy. So can I just say this, man, if you're a follower, if you're not quite sure about this Jesus thing, God is not saying, hey, if you be a better person, then I'll love you. 
He'll say, right now, today, I'm walking around yelling to rescue anyone who needs help. And if that's you today, like, you can ask the Lord. You can repent of your sins. You can trust in him. And you can ask him for the grace and the forgiveness that he came to deliver. And for those of us that are followers of Jesus, man, where are you not living in this truth that Jesus has come to save you and give you grace? Man, where are you pursuing things, thinking they'll satisfy you or, or they'll give you contentment? But where are you struggling and not walking with the Lord in his community? Jesus alone is where we find joy, and we do not follow him to get something from him, but rather so that we can experience the freedom that he gives to all of us, to all of us.